0: This is our second week in the Gospel of Luke, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 1. Last week, we covered four verses. This week, we're covering 76 verses, all right? So strap on your seatbelts. This should be fun. And we will be on page 855 of the Bibles that we provided for you. They're in the rows. Uh, as you turn there, I want to tell you just about a, an experience I had a, a last month with some of our community group men. Uh, most of you know we have small groups. They also just relaunched this week. And uh, oftentimes the, the guys will try to get together, you know, periodically, and the ladies will too. And so uh, some of the guys in our community group, Dave and, and some others, had organized a trip to the movies, all right? We went to see uh, Batman, All right, the new Batman movie, and I'll be honest, I had not been to the movies in a while, so I was pretty excited about it. And you know, since I had not splurged on a movie lately, I thought, hey, you know, I'm gonna make this trip to the movies. You know, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get my money's worth. All right, and that meant dishing out more and more money, if you know what I'm saying. And so, you know, there are a few things that I love about the the movies, aside from the movies, because you never really know what you're gonna get with the movie. Right? It can be hit or miss. But you can always count on usually at least a few things. I mean, number one, I love going with friends, all right? So we had our community group guys. We were going together usually. I'm not one to go to the movies alone. Some of you kind of can do that. That's your thing, no problem. But I like to go with friends, all right? So going with friends, that's always a great benefit of going to the movies. Number two, you know, they just have that huge concessions, you know, as you walk in. And so it's very hard for me to get past that spot without, you know, pulling out the wallet and getting the biggest bag of popcorn, you know, with like loads of butter, you know what I'm saying? And just pouring it on there, big coat, going to the movies. And then and then beyond that, you have what comes before the movies, the previews, right? So so even if even if the movie doesn't turn out well, I mean, at least you should have a few previews that you enjoy that are kind of, you know, Telling you about some upcoming movies on the horizon. I mean, does anyone enjoy those few things about going to the movies? Yeah, maybe like hit the trifecta with me there. Friends, popcorn, previews. I mean, I'm loving that, all right? And so I can't wait to go to the movies again. Just kind of wet my appetite a bit uh, last month. But as, as we think about Luke chapter 1, okay, to bring this back to the gospel here, um, what, what's going on here in chapter one is Luke is essentially going to give us a preview of sorts. All right. Now he told us that he's going to write this orderly account in his prologue, the first four verses. And, you know, he may not have, you know, penned this chapter, the, the rest of these 76 verses to, you know, hey, I'm going to give these guys a preview, and then you are going to read chapters 2 to 24. But for all intents and purposes, as we read the rest of chapter 1, we are going to get a great preview of what he is going to unpack as we go throughout the chapter. So last week we looked at how Luke is writing this gospel to inform his audience of the great salvation that is found in Christ. And this week, the, the encouragement for us is that to, to receive Jesus as the promised Messiah who will reign forever. That's the primary encouragement, that we would receive Jesus as the promised Messiah who will reign forever. And that is on these 76 verses. That's what Luke is going to take this on a journey to help teach us what it looks like to see Jesus as the promised Messiah who will one day reign forever. So I want to unpack this chapter by giving you three different truths to kind of think on and, and examine here with me this morning. The first is this, that the Son of God is unique in how he came. All right? it's, a, it's another way of saying there is no one else in the history of the world who has arrived in the same way that Jesus arrived. And we see this in, in several different ways, and, and Luke 1 really highlights this for us. Number one, he fulfilled God's promises through the prophets. I mean, have you, have you ever longed for something have you ever just had it kind of set your mind on an expectation, a hope, a longing to the point where maybe it even kind of changed your physical disposition? I mean you were just aching for this 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 event to arrive, whether that might be a child. Mothers can identify as a nine months is a long time to be pregnant. So there's kind of longing for this this child to arrive. Maybe you're longing for a spouse. Maybe you're longing for kind of a breakthrough in your career, but we often have these longings, even sometimes when we are going through a difficult trial and it's like, when is this ever going to end? We live with longings and expectations and hopes. And this was true for the people of Israel, the people of God. They were living with this aching in this longing for God to send His coming deliverer, the Messiah, who would save His people and rule and reign over His people. And we are going to see this in Luke chapters 1 and 2. We're going to meet characters like Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're going to meet Mary and Joseph. We're going to meet Simeon and Anna and all of these righteous Israelites were waiting for the coming Messiah. They had set their hopes on him. And as we're going to see, I mean, just a few things here. He tells us over and over in the chapter that God has remembered his mercy. All right, verses 54 and 72, that God keeps his covenant with Abraham. Verses 55 and 73, that God does exactly what he said he would do when he spoke by the prophets of old, verse 70. So you see, way in, in the beginning, we can't just start at the New Testament. We have to understand that as early as Genesis 12, God was making a covenant with his people, Abraham. And, and, and he, he continues to do this throughout the Old Testament. The prophets, the kings, they are continually pointing to this coming Messiah who was promised and who would deliver on all of God's expectations. And so Luke 1 is announcing, hey, look out. You better get your head up because the time is here. And so this is part of the great preview that Luke gives us, and it is part of the reason that Jesus was so unique in his coming because no one else could fulfill those prophecies, only Jesus. So he's unique in how he came and he fulfilled God's promises to the prophets, and then he even had a special herald to announce his coming whose name was John. And so let's pick up now in the text. We're gonna actually read verses five through 25 now. So read along as, as I, I read them for us. Here's what Luke writes. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God Outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? "'For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years.' "'And the angel answered him, "'I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, "'and I was sent to speak to you "'and to bring you this good news. "'And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak "'until the day that these things take place, "'because you do not believe my words.' Which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. And so we have this this announcement to Zechariah. That, that he and his wife will bear a son named John. And we obviously covering 76 verses, we can't break them all down in minute details, but we want to hit the highlights as we go this morning. And really what we find in, in this passage is that verses 13 and 18 teach us much about John the Baptist. It says that that in verse 13, that that they will call his name John, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, why would they be rejoicing? What is the big deal about John? Well, John is, is unique in that verse 15 says, he will be great before the Lord. So some scholars have said that the John's greatness resides in both his character, okay, it says that he will be filled with the Spirit, he's not gonna, gonna, going to drink wine or strong drink, and, and why is that? Well, like the priests of the Old Testament, when they were on duty, they wouldn't partake of strong drink or wine, all right, so this isn't a prohibition against all, all form of drinking, it's just this was his assignment, he had a special holy assignment from God, And so he abstained so that he might be filled with the Spirit and serve God in this special task. And it says that he was great before the Lord. Now, don't miss that that, that phrase that follows. He was great, but where did his greatness lie? It was before the Lord. So, so he, his, his greatness was defined by who he knew and who he served and what his task was to carry out. And let me just say as an aside, okay, and this might be a great word for, for our college students. You're, you're young, you're, you're fresh in school, you've come to Boston like many of us came to Boston here, not because you want to embrace mediocrity, right? I mean, people do not come to Boston, one of the greatest cities on the planet, just to be mediocre in their field and in their endeavors, right? They come to Boston to excel, sometimes to to dominate their particular field of study or or profession. And so a lot of times we get caught up in in our accomplishments and our accolades, and we want those pat on the back of the recognition, and we define greatness in all those kinds of ways, but yet, maybe it would be wise for us to define greatness like God defines greatness. And, and here's the catch. I mean, God is the one who defines greatness. If, if we know God, if we have a task from God and are serving God, and it doesn't matter what kind of profession. I mean, uh, this whole world is God's and everything in it. And God wants all of us to, whatever our vocation is, to do our best and to excel, but to not get caught up and wrapped up in the reality that greatness comes from, from some, you know, Uh, recognition from people who probably don't really care that much about us anyway, right? But that greatness should be defined by God. And there is something so freeing in that. I think you'll experience that as you go through life. And so John's greatness was found in his mission, his task. And what was that task? Well, verse 16 and 17 tell us, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so Zechariah, here's your son's job description. John the Baptist, he will... Prepare the way for the Lord. That's it. That's that's his job description. That's where his greatness lies. He is making ready, preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. And so remember, this isn't about John's greatness here. This is about the greatness of the Son of God. He was unique in how he came and that he fulfilled God's promises through the prophets. And he was unique in that he had a, a forerunner to announce his coming. And then thirdly, as we see down in this, this next passage, this next part, that he was born of a virgin. Look in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So how is this this second birth, this greater birth going to come about? It's going to come about by a miraculous conception. And when we see from Luke's historical research and and detail here that he is, it it, it seems that he's even probably had a conversation with Mary. We'll see in Luke chapter 2, he talks about how she treasured up all these things in her heart. It's it's likely that she was still alive when Luke was doing the research for his gospel here. And so he he gets this report and, and Mary is, you know, she's not that old to be having a child, but she's old enough to know how this kind of works, right? And so she says in verse 34, like, hey, I am betrothed. There's basically, it's like engagement on steroids. I'm pledged to be married to Joseph, but I have not known Joseph, if you know what I mean by no. If you don't, we'll talk after the service, all right? So um, she's so he's saying, I'm a virgin here. I can't, how, how am I gonna have a baby And I know this is this is kind of, you know, our 21st century mind, this is like hard to wrap our minds around. It's hard for us to embrace oftentimes. But this is a clear testimony of Scripture. This is the clear belief throughout the centuries of church history. And we stand right with the saints of old. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Someone once asked Larry King who in the course of history would you, would you like to interview? And not surprisingly, one of those people was Jesus. And they, they proceeded to ask him, well, what is, what is maybe a couple of questions that you would like to ask Jesus? And listen to what Larry King said. I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. Because the answer to that question would define history. History. I think he had it right. The answer to that question would define history. I mean, the virgin birth is so important to our theological understanding of who Jesus is, right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he would not be tainted with the original sin that we carry. Added to that, it, it, it teaches us, it tells us that, that Jesus being born both born of, of man, born of a woman, would have a fully human nature, but also being born of God, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, he would also be fully God. Donald McLeod has this, this potent quote when he says this, that the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. Now, that may be strong, but let me explain what Donald here is saying. He's saying, look, if you will not accept the virgin birth, then sinless life, substitutionary death, resurrection, ascension reign forever over all things, you're probably going to have great difficulty in moving from point A to B to C to D to E to F. So we just accept the whole thing. God has convinced us that it's true. He's fulfilled the prophecies and he's, 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 he's made this unique work in Christ come to pass. And I know somebody's saying, like, Tanner, how do you defend the virgin birth? I mean, this is not, like, you know, evidence here, rationally. Like, how can we, how can you defend the virgin birth? Well, i just like to go to verse 37. It's a good one to memorize, by the way. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. So if you're a, if you're a theist, or if you're open to the idea of there being a God, then if God is, is there anything that that God could not do? I I don't think it's much of a leap to get to the virgin birth. But beyond all the questions and the doubts of of skeptical minds, and even sometimes our own doubts that we wrestle with, right? Beyond all of that, we think about the virgin birth, sometimes it's easy to miss them, maybe what's foundational to it all, that God is sending this miraculous gift to us, and it's a gift to be received. So even as we're looking at who Jesus is, and and, in his unique way, his one-of-a-kind way that he came, and, and to give us this gift, I would just ask you, have you received this gift? And as we paint this picture of the person and work of Christ, I would challenge you to to really weigh out, have I received this gift? Am I living life in light of this gift? Because that's point number two. The Son of God is unique in his person and work. And I mean, sometimes, you know, we just read the Bible and we read it, you know? But sometimes the, the, the claims are so staggering that we just kind of need to see it with fresh eyes. And that's what I'm praying for this morning. Look in verses 32 and, and 33. They really contain some of the most robust and potent Christology in the New Testament. By the way, these, these two verses are our meta-memo verses, all right? Verses that we try to meditate on and memorize each week. Last week, we threw like a 10-mile-per-hour softball. Anybody play softball? All right? I played church softball back in college, and I was probably the only one on our team to strike out. It was really, really embarrassing. The Red Sox are not calling me anytime. Soon, But 10 mile per hour softball. Last week we met a memo for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's Luke 19.10. A little more kind of heat with this meta memo. Okay, 32 and 33, 97 mile per hour on the corners. Get ready. Here we go. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, listen to what Michael Wilcox says of these two verses, all right? The stupendous claims which the angel makes for this unborn baby would have staggered Jewish readers of the gospel. For the son of Mary is a colossal figure. He will be the greatest ruler that not only Israel, but the world has ever seen. Verses 32 and 33. Let's not just run by them with a lot of speed. Let's dissect them a bit. First off, Jesus is unique in his person. He is great. Do you remember what it said about John the Baptist? What did it say? He was great, before the before the lord Jesus is great his greatness is unqualified he is great within himself it is intrinsic to who he is he's just great it's part of who he is it's part of his character the only, the only time we, we see that in the, in, the, in the Bible is when it says great is the Lord and greatly to be great praised and his greatness is unsearchable. That greatness is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is great. He is the son of the most high. Another way of saying he's the son of God and he will reign forever on the throne of David. Now, again, we need to know our Old Testament a bit to really understand this. Not only do we have the Abrahamic co- covenant in Genesis 12 and the Mosaic covenant in the book of Exodus, we have the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises to David that he will raise up a king after him who will sit on his throne and reign forever. And the prophets would continue to tell the people of Israel this to give them hope in God's coming salvation. So in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, uh, two verses that we always cling to at Christmas, all right, it's Christmas early in the fall here. What What does it say in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7? For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, again, right, this is a preview. I mean, Luke is not even giving us details about his birth yet. He's not recounting the birth of Christ, he is just telling us about his coming. So in these verses already, Luke has told us that he is the son of God. He is the Davidic Messiah. He is a king who'll reign forever and he is the Holy One, verse 35. And don't miss verse 43. Look back at it. Basically, Mary visits Elizabeth. And when she arrives, it says that John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb, just picture this, leaps for joy. And what does Elizabeth say prophetically? In verse 33, she, she says, and why is this granted to me, this unbelievable privilege that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Do you, you get that? The mother of my Lord So so this baby in the womb of Mary is the Lord of the lady who's seen it, Elizabeth. That's that's exactly what Luke is saying. Jesus is her Lord. Jesus is God. That's who he is. What about what he brings? And this this is good. I wish we had like 12 hours to study Luke 1, okay? Don't worry, we don't. Um, so, so we've seen already that he'll reign forever. He's ushering in a kingdom that has already been inaugurated, but has not yet fully been consummated or fulfilled. Okay, so these promises are still being fulfilled, and one day will be fully realized. But, but, but then Luke one again—it's it, it's the theological foundation for everything that we're going to see in Luke. It sets the table for this great salvation that will continue to be unpacked as we go throughout the gospel of Luke. And so we we just see here just a few highlights. Number one, salvation belongs to God. All right, verse 47, it says that that, um, God is my savior. Verse uh, 68, God has visited, redeemed, raised up a horn of salvation. So salvation is God's work. It belongs to him. Uh, We have no salvation apart from the grace of God giving us salvation in Christ. Number two, salvation includes forgiveness through mercy. Skip on down to verses 76, and we're just going to read a few here. This is in Zechariah's uh, uh, prophecy of of blessing. He he says in, in verses 76 through 78a, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because the tender mercy of our God. so, so really what, what what is happening here in these early prophecies is that Luke is is reporting how that Zechariah and these people through, through uh, divine revelation and prophecy they were uh, they were Letting people know that their understanding of Messiah really needed to be corrected a bit, all right? And you say, why is that, Tanner? Well, um, the Messiah for the for the for the Jewish people was always one that would set up a physical kingdom, have a physical reign from the from the start. But what we find in Christ is that, yes, he does heal, and he does um, do a number of, of works that are a physical blessing to people, but he first deals with our greatest enemies, as it speaks of here in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies. He, he deals with our spiritual enemies. And this is what it says. It, it says that that he gives knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of what? Of their sins. Because God is so merciful. He's full of mercy. And so what we need in our deepest need, God meets in Christ. He forgives us of our sin. I mean, how do you, how do you respond when, when you are offended? Is it it ever difficult to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to people? And sometimes, you know, I mean, if you're just like me at all, sometimes you struggle with that a bit. And sometimes over the most silly stuff, right? The The most trivial matters. Well, can you imagine God? Perfectly, holy, infinitely for all eternity. Holy, perfect, righteous, to offend Him and to do so again and again and again and again and again and again? How could we ever come into His presence? How could we ever be right with Him? Well, it has to be because of His own choosing that He would extend mercy and forgiveness to us. And He does so Through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. So, listen, wherever you stand right now with God, I mean, there is not a person in the room who has not sinned against God. That puts us all in the same camp. But what separates us into maybe two different camps is there are those who have seen Christ and seen the salvation that he comes to bring, and they're saying, you know what? I see that. I need that. I am not perfect. My sin has separated me from God and I need the forgiveness that God offers me. And then there are perhaps others who are just kind of learning about this, this whole forgiveness deal and they're saying, you know what? I see that and I'm gonna decide if I, if I really need that. I wanna receive it. So if you're in that latter camp, I, I pray that, that God will show you that there, he is full of forgiveness, ready to give you life. In Christ. This is part of the salvation that he brings. And then, and then also, just keep reading there in verse 78 and 9 it says, Whereby the sun shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you ever need guidance in life? Upcoming decisions, new circumstances? You get thrown for a loop. You don't know what to do. You need some guidance in life. Well, God understands this. And he gives guidance. He does so by sending us his light. And, and added to that, it says that he, he sends his light to give us peace, to l- lead us in paths of peace. And some of you are thinking, that's great, because I need some peace. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm stressed out. I'm anxious. And you know what? God can give you his peace. Peace. I love Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but everything in prayer and petition. Make your request known to God, and the peace of God, which uh, surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, that is some awesome peace right there. And you need to know that, you need to believe that, you need to receive that. But but if that's all peace that, they, that God provided, if that was, if it just kind of ended there, I mean, that would be great, but it, it certainly wouldn't be the full biblical picture. All right? Because peace, okay, peace in the Old Testament, is this concept of shalom? And, and shalom meant full, not just the absence of conflict, but full human flourishing. So God wants the best for us. He wants us to experience all of His blessings. And He will one day right every wrong, bring total restoration, send this new heavens and new earth by which we will experience his shalom in its fullness. Today, it's our privilege to experience it in part. And this is the, the light that he gives to, for us to experience this shalom, even on a daily basis. It is not beyond your grasp because of the grace of God. So Jesus is unique in how he came. He is unique in his person and his work. And just very briefly, he is also unique in the response he deserves. Let me give you two thoughts, all right? Number one, this salvation that Jesus brings, it should produce praise, all right? We we have this awesome hymn of, of praise from Mary in verses 46 through 55. It's known as the Magnificat, all right? And it gets that name from the opening verses. Look at what Mary said. Such a beautiful testimony of praise from Mary. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So though we don't pray to Mary or, 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 or see that she is sinless in any way, like some traditions do, we don't want to swing the pendulum too far and kind of ignore Mary as if she isn't a godly example to emulate and to respect and, and, and to, to follow because what she is is an obedient servant, a humble servant of God who responds rightly and she responds with praise. I mean, did you see that? She said her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I mean, it is, it is this intensely personal reality just coming up through her. You see that she is she is magnifying the lord It means she's pointing to his greatness and she is rejoicing joy is just produced in her heart as she thinks on the great salvation that god is sending to her and and his people and then and then finally in verses 68 and following we have zechariah's what's called benedictus all right i just found that out this week all right we all learned something new all right, And we get this word, it's from the Latin, it's the very first word in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So not only is Mary giving God praise, but Zechariah can't help but get in on the deal as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, you know what? I and mean, God, you are awesome. I am also going to magnify you. I'm also going to rejoice in what you are doing. And let me just suggest that day in, day out, week in, week out, to give God praise through magnifying who he is and what he has done and by rejoicing in that, which is so cool about God, by the way. All right, because we say, you know, we were created for God's glory to give him praise. And you say, Well, God's so egotistical, he's such a narcissist. But but, but you know what? God does not separate his praise from our joy. It's the best that he knows this is what is best for us, and this is where we're really gonna find life and joy, is through magnifying and praising him. So that's what we see in Mary and in Zechariah. Salvation leads to praise and salvation leads to action. Look in verses 74 and five. He's bringing this, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our Days. Simply put, are you ready for this? Christianity. Jesus will turn your life upside down. It's just that radical. Okay, we who once did not live for God now we live for God. Once that we did not fear Him, we do fear Him. Once we did not give a rib about serving Him, now we serve Him gladly. We live our life for Him. He is Lord. It is a comprehensive change that begins to take place when someone calls and confesses Jesus as Lord. So not only does this salvation produce praise, but it also produces action and a total transformation of our lives day after day after day. So how can we live this out? Well, it's the reality that we see all through chapter one. It's by his Holy Spirit. All right, the the Spirit will fill John the Baptist. The power of the Spirit conceived Christ in Mary's womb. Uh, Elizabeth greeted Mary by the inspiration of the Spirit. Zechariah celebrates the the birth of John the Baptist by prophecy in the Holy Spirit. If you want to live your life for God, don't do it in your own strength. Do it by the power of the Spirit. That's how we get it done. And so let me ask you, with this preview of Luke chapter one? I mean, what is a preview designed to do? It is, it's, it's designed so that, that, that those who see it would say, hey, I want more. What about you? Is this, is this, does this do that for, does this elicit that kind of response? I want more because some of you are saying, hey, I want more. And somebody's saying, Tanner, hold up. I'm I'm already in. You don't have to keep going. I mean, I'm I'm in. This is enough. Jesus is the Son of God. He's Savior, the Lord of all. I'm in. But you know what the best answer would be? I'm in, but I've got to see more. I've got to have more. May that be the cry of our heart here this morning. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do that in our heart. That we would see Christ as the infinitely valuable treasure that he is, the one who is your promised Messiah who brings salvation in ways that we have yet fully to to grasp and comprehend. And yet, Father, even as we say, you know, Jesus is Lord, I am in with him, we would just, the cry of our heart would just be to to, to want more and more of you, to want to live more faithfully to you day by day by day. So, God, would you just transform our individual lives? Would you transform this church to where we would say we're in and we got to have more? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.